Hello, you're listening to Wine Blast, the podcast that brings wine to life with a smile. I'm Susie Barry and I'm joined as ever by my husband and fellow Master of Wine, Peter Richards. And in this episode, we've got more smiles than ever before, haven't we? We do. Lots of smiles. Um, um, chuckles, a few chuckles. Giggles. Belly laughs. Excellent. And stories. Stories because, because we are privileged, honoured, maybe might be a better word. I think we are. To have the great Hugh Johnson. OBE on the show. How cool is that? It's pretty cool. <laughs> so not only one of the greatest wine writers and communicators ever, um, but also someone who takes wine seriously, but also doesn't take wine too seriously. I know, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a great knack, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, he manages yeah. to make this a complicated subject like wine fun and intriguing, but he has been doing it for more than 50 years. I mean, mm. he was born in 1939 and yep. his first book, Wine, was published in 1966. Mm. He's won pretty much every award going in the wine world. He's sold millions of books from his Pocket Wine book, which is in its 44th, 44th edition, just, just about, just well, just that, about yeah. being published. He said he couldn't remember published. which one. He, said he thought it was 43 and then he was well, corrected and said, sorry, 44. I think we'll, we'll forgive him for that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so that, that's been, just been, been published yeah. um, to the World Atlas of Wine and yeah. many, yeah. many more. Yeah. I mean, he's probably one of, if not the best-selling wine author ever, isn't he? Yeah. I, I, he, he must be. be. He must be. Must he's, be. Too, he's too modest to say himself, but you know. And do you know a little bit of a little bit of uh, something a bit different here? Did you know he almost wasn't Hugh Johnson at all? Really? No. Yeah. Go on, go on. Okay. So when he started out writing freelance, apparently, uh, Vogue magazine, who was employing him at the time, didn't like him moonlighting. So he had to write under a pseudonym. Mm-hmm. And his pseudonym was John Congreve. Very uh, statuesque. Very mysterious. Yeah, it's, it's all a bit J.K. <laughs> Rowling, isn't it? But, you know, so we might have been, uh, you know, sitting here discussing the great John Congreve. Great whatever, though. Well, he's great, whatever, great whatever, whatever name you put on him, he's, yeah. he, he's great. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. a bit of pub, pub trivia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pub quiz pub, trivia. Pub trivia. Pub tri- pub tri- pub tri- yeah, we are, even that one. <laughs> Trust you. Anyway, <laughs> I, I'm conscious we need to get on track because this mm. is, we're going to warn you, this is a long episode. I'm blaming you mm. because uh, because you chatted for too long. But, uh, mm. but I guess it's long for a reason because time with Hugh Johnson is hugely precious and there are so many fascinating things to discuss. Um, One of which is the imminent release of his seminal 1989 book, The Story of Wine, which is being republished on the 9th of September by the Académie du Vin. Yes, so so we talk about that among many other things. We do get around to talking about it in the end. Um, But I was lucky enough to be invited to Hugh's home in London uh, which is beautiful. Um, and just to set the scene, you know, I, I felt very bad having to ask him to close the lovely double doors, um, you know, which lead out into a gorgeous garden. Well, wow, because wow, I, I mean, gardening is a big thing for you, isn't it? Yeah, uh, and it trees mm. are, I think, one of his greatest passions, and mm, he's certainly mm. written about them. He's written they? lots, yeah. he's published books and, and whatnot. But, yeah. you know, uh, I, I did that just to explain because, you know, because it's all about the sound quality, isn't it? All about the sound Our life quality. is about sound quality. Everything in life does seem to be about the sound quality. Yeah. So anyway, I made sure we were properly socially distanced and I tried to balance the mics on, you know, sort of piles of books, which of which there are many there in his house. Lots. On every conceivable service there's books. Sounds, it is yeah. absolutely amazing. So we were very precariously set up. I tried to point the mic sort of vaguely in Hugh's direction. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, we were interrupted on several occasions after that by the chiming of his I, very I nice I did clock. notice listening to the interview, there's a lot of lovely little <laughs> yeah. chimes, yeah. aren't which is, there? Which I think oh. set the scene very nicely. But, you know, we soldiered on. And, and to be frank, it was just a brilliant brilliant interview it's i enjoyed lovely. it so much so yeah. so without further ado let's jump in and i started by asking Hugh, you know a slightly absurd question for him but anyway you know and it was to introduce himself i'm hugh johnson 
And I was in the magazine trade for years and years and years until I wrote a book about wine. I could not find the book I wanted to read about wine. So in 1966, having just got married, um, I left all paid employment and wrote a book called Wine. And to everybody's surprise, it sold. And it was translated, and it sold and sold. And it it gave me um, a new, complete position in life, really, as the guy who could write about wine. Um, how many years is that? Over 50 years ago? So then I went on magazine uh, editing. I edited Queen magazine, uh, fashionable, glossy, uh, until James Mitchell, my publisher, said, what about a book of maps of wine? And I said, mm, real maps? Yeah, he said. I said, ordnance survey type maps with all that detail? He said, yes. I said, you're on. I said, this is incredible. If you really will invest in doing brilliant first-rate maps, it will sell because it will convince people. And they will think that it's not all a lot of uh, baloney about the Cote d'Or or the Medoc or something. They will see it. They'll think they've been there. And they will remember. So we did it and it worked. But that must have been a massive undertaking. And if I remember rightly, you were saying they were, you know, they didn't have lavish operations at that stage. Quite the opposite. Mapping is always the most difficult part of a wine book. How, did, how on earth did you manage to do it in such exquisite detail? <laughs> I have to admit, I... I made some of it up, <laughs> not much, but but then, as as you say, it was very difficult. The concept of having good wine maps was unknown, really. There, there were the famous Lama maps made during the war in France. People said that if they hadn't had the cooperation of the Germans, they'd never have got the paper. So it was a slightly suspect, but they were brilliant and very detailed maps. And for the Cote d'Or, they were absolutely essential. Mm. But the rest of France and the rest of the world, I mean, oh yes, I went to the Office Internationale du Vin to say, what, what have you got that could help me? And they said, oh, we opened a file on that about 20 years ago, and the Portuguese took it on. We'll see what's in the file. <laughs> they opened it, there wasn't anything. <laughs> so you had, to, you had to make do, you had to make, make the best job that you did. But obviously it's turned into the most amazing. I was going driving my little mini round with these maps uh, on the seat beside me yeah. with sort of wax pens and plastic overlays. And, uh, it, was, it was a great adventure. Well, the, 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 what is the Chinese proverb? Uh, the adventure start, has to start with the first step, doesn't it? Um, just to take you back to that first book, though, what, what was it about wine books that you couldn't, what were you looking for that you couldn't find? And, and how did you then go about solving it with your book? I needed a simple, cheerful explanation of what was where and why, and why it was the way it was and why it mattered and how to enjoy it above all else. Or bringing in real life and a bit of food and that kind of thing. Because up to that time, there were um, some very good appreciations of wine, but it aimed at a tiny market, you know. Sort of, so more the cognoscenti, the connoisseurs, uh, preaching to the converted. Funnily enough, the, the best, the, the longest-lived wine book of all time is now 100 years old. George Saintsbury's Notes on a Cellar Book. And if you look at it, there's hardly anything about wine in it. 
It's about cocktails. <laughs> so there we have the secret to a good wine book. Not much about wine. But you, joking aside, you know, you use the words cheerful and enjoyable. And I think that's what many people do appreciate about your writing. You know, there's huge erudition behind it. But the way you tell the story, and we're going to come on to talk about your book, The Story of Wine, is the way you tell it. Is that something you do consciously or is that just how it comes out? Well, it's funny because when I wrote my first book, I had to t- find a voice. And it's pretty much the same voice, but with, of course, a lot more knowledge behind it. Um, and so more confidence. And I feel there's room for a joke or two. <laughs> you know, I can sort of bring it along as something as real life. Yeah, I am a cheerful chap. And I bring it into all my writing. And you also mentioned food as well. How important do you think food is in the, in the general wine debate? Is, is, is it important to talk about food when you're talking about wine as well? I think so. Yeah, I mean, I love good food writing. I really do. I mean, I think it can be really salivating, really. My patron was Henri Simon, who uh, died in 1970 in his 90s, so it puts it back a bit. But he almost invented wine writing. As it, uh, he wrote a 100 books, not all about wine. Um, and uh, he loved uh, anthropomorphic similes. I mean... A wine was like an old lady or a buxom woman or a pretty girl. I mean, a lot of that came into it. And, of course, he was right. <laughs> that is what they're like. Um, and you mentioned food writing. You were obviously friendly with, as well with Elizabeth David. Yes, we were very good friends indeed. Oh, I mean, her, her writing thrills me still. Mm. Partly because she brings in so much scholarship. You know, it is, it's not just an, an opinion. It's a, an opinion grounded in, in, in fact and history and experience. So, again, not just about food, but, but, but a bigger picture. Yes, oh yes about culture. <laughs> so we're here to talk about the story of wine, uh, your famous book, obviously. This is its, its new release, its new launch, its relaunch. Uh, it's first published in 1989, as far as I believe. So just tell us a bit about writing that first version. Well, um, I had wanted to tell this story for a long time. The obvious way to do it, really, to reach a wide public was through television. But somehow that wasn't going to work because, as the BBC said, we can't do any more. It is not a, a, a graphic, visual enough subject for television. So I had to think, hang on, what, there, there are things about it uh, if we base it on the history of wine because then we can travel all over the world and we can tackle subjects of real interest, like, for example, why does Islam prohibit wine? I've never really discovered the answer to that. Well, you have a funny story about sitting down with it. Was it an imam? Yes, uh, that, that was in, in Leighton House in Kensington, that wonderful sort of tiled surroundings, beautifully Islamic. And uh, the imam agreed to come and be interviewed, and I thought for the camera, it'd be rather fun if I had a green gold goblet, goblet of, of wine poured for me by the nearest we could get to a hauri, which is a very lightly clad young lady. <laughs> These lambs looked away. <laughs> the imam, I mean. Um, and anyway, I quizzed him and I said, you know, I, I dare to read your holy book and, and it's fascinating and there's some lovely poetry in it and so on. But why is wine banned? And, and how is it banned? Because there are only two verses that actually prohibit wine. And in, and, and in both cases, it's, it's a bit ambiguous. 
because it is wine and gambling. You know, if you unscramble that, you, <laughs> is it because you must be sober when you're gambling? Mm. Anyway, I couldn't get an answer. I was sort of treading on delicate ground. Right, I see. Yes, I understand. But um, so, so you did the TV series for Channel 4. You made it happen, but you said it was a tremendous uh, labour of love. The, the American side of it is why it happened, because I had to have a sponsor, and the budget was huge. And it only happened because I had Michael Gill, who was the, the man who really introduced um, cultural documentaries to the BBC with um, uh, Kenneth Clark's Civilization was a creation. So meeting him and convincing him was step one. Uh, and we became great friends. And that, that the whole quality of the thing was based on Michael. Uh, the money, um, I realized that at the time, um, Villa Banfi in the States was making coining money, selling a version of Lambrusco, Italian sweet fizz, uh, selling oh, quantities in America. And they were making so much money, they were practically ashamed of themselves. Um, and John and Harry Mariani, the owners, uh, became great friends. Um, and they said, yes. We, I remember John saying, we've made so much money out of the wine business, I want to give some of it back to the tune of quite a few million dollars. Um, so that's how it really happened. So that's how that helped you then find the budget to... And then it, it, there was a bitter moment, I must just add, which was that uh, public broadcasting absolutely excludes mentions of sponsors. So I could go all around the world talking about, you know, Lafitte, Latour, Montavi, Penfold, you name it. But when I came to the great Banffy winery, I couldn't say where I was. I couldn't mention the name. Because they'd helped fund it. Because they helped find it. They weren't pleased about that, nor was I. <laughs> um, so in his forward to this new uh, edition, Andrew Roberts the eminent historian says that this is a, an adventure story full of mysteries, art and culture, uh, the rise and fall of empires and a good deal of autobiography too, um, a celebration of a passion. What would be your summary of the book? It's summarised by the title. It's the story of wine. <laughs> it sure is, actually. Yes, so, so not purposefully not the history of wine. No, I mean, I, if I called it history, I'd be attacked by every qualified historian in the world. Well, I'm not sure you would, Hugh, but anyway. Well, I, I mean, <laughs> uh, what's your evidence for this, right. you know, and have you... you know, anyway, um, no, I wanted to tell sto a story, and I span it into tales, in the plural, really. I mean, the chapters are almost... Mm. You know, it's not, not a book you have to read right through. You can pick up a chapter and it, and it works as a story, I hope. Um, so it was a joy to, to, to write and to find what I needed to make stories out of it. And what a subject. I mean, were there, were there any particular... You said when you first came to do it, it was a story you felt like you really wanted to tell. Was there any particular aspect, any particular stories that particularly got you interested in the first place? Well, I've always been intrigued by, by how the great wines were discovered. Or, I mean, you know, you can start with the grape varieties, although I didn't talk very much about the grape varieties. Um, how did 
um, Cabernet Sauvignon emerge as the thing to plant. And to succeed, Malbec, which used to be the main variety in the Medoc, for example, and then you go into that and you find that in about 1800, uh, the uh, Regisseur, the manager of Chateau Latour, wrote to Fiona saying, I have decided to replace Malbec with Cabernet Sauvignon in our best plot. So there was a conscious decision here. Um, I think it was because Malbec was either suffering from various fungi uh, or not ripening or whatever it was. Cabernet was a, 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 it was a risky choice because it's late ripening mm. and it needed warm soils, mm. the gravel and so on. Uh, so how those things emerge is marvellous. But also, I think, in every region, you know, the unimportant regions, uh, people were working on improvement all the time. And how were these sort of subsistence farmers, in many cases, finding the time or the sort of moral energy to reject some <laughs> some vines and select others? I think it's a miracle. And there's a book which I'd love to see translated into English, actually, or parts of it, which was the standard work in France for a long, long time. And this is La Culture de la Vigne by Chaptal. Now, people, Chaptal's a familiar name because Chaptalization means adding sugar. And he was Napoleon's minister of practically everything except war. And um, Chaptal was trying to support the new sugar beet industry in the north of France at the same time as the wine industry in the south. And he put two and two together. Um, and he wrote this book, uh, which is, I think it was, a, you'd have seen it in every farmer's, wine farmer's house in France for a century, uh, how to do it uh, in different parts of France. Uh, it starts with an extraordinary chapter castigating winemaker and say, you're too bloody idle, you've got to get it wrong, <laughs> follow my instructions. It's a fascinating book. And I, I love this concept of, obviously, you know, with history of wine's a subject with tremendous tradition behind it, and we think of things as being set in stone, and I think it's lovely that you challenge that notion, and equally in the book you say, this process of finding new classics and creating new traditions never stops, it's part of wine's fabric. But... Uh, I mean, it's, it's clearer now. And furthermore, the word tradition is sort of grabbed by everybody to justify whatever they're doing. Um, where in many cases, tradition is stretching it a bit. You know, it was a, it was a, a, it was a habit. Could have been a lazy habit. <laughs> it didn't, it wasn't surrounded with laws and ceremonies and things at all. It's the way it was done. Something that stuck. Um, so where, I mean, difficult question, I know, but Anything you'd potentially flag up now in the modern wine world as, as a new classic, a new, something you get excited about and you think, actually, this could stick around for a while now. This could have traction. Well, I think the main thing to flag up is the acceptance of scientific knowledge and the application of scientific knowledge. At one point, one could say that there's a new generation, you know, not stuck in the past. The first generation... Uh, inheriting the wine world in, in, in land and, and so on, who went to college. You know, their parents had never been to college. Uh, and so they'd met 
other, they met their contemporaries, they had read books, they got ideas, and they met scientists. Uh, and this was a huge change. And some of them drew quite the wrong conclusions from this knowledge. Well, that's interesting. I'd go a bit more, for, go a bit further into that. Well, I mean, just to take various, uh, very odd, I mean, copying bad habits was, was very, when they seemed to be modernizing, a very obvious one is the use of oak. Buying expensive new oak barrels to give your wine a sort of posh gloss um, was wildly overdone. And um, people didn't realize that, that wine is not meant to taste of oak at all. Oak is the container for part of the process. If oak actually stains the taste, you might say, for a while, that should be one uh, for, for a short period in wine's life. You know, a good wine eventually doesn't taste of oak. It's shaken off the influence of oak and it tastes of itself. But of course, at one point, because wine barrels cost so much, People wanted to make it obvious that they'd used them. So, yes, they laid on the oak and charged for it. And I suppose there's the argument that people made technically very clean, pure wines, but maybe they lost a sense of the soul, a sense of place, a sense of complexity. Y- yes, I mean, I'm always a bit foxed by this expression, the sense of place. Um, it's very commonly used, uh, but how rarely does, unless you've got a an experience of that taste. You know, if you've been tasting Burgundy for years, you've got a pretty good idea that the Cote de Nuit produces different wines from the from the Cote de Bone, though you can get that wrong. Um, but if you haven't tasted it <laughs> half your life, how on earth do you know that it's the place that you're tasting? You, you, you speak of, you write very eloquently of, of listening to what a wine has to say. Yeah. And you recall your first experiences your very first wine, your Damascene moment is just tasting two wines and, and saying, well, hang on, this one's different from the other one. Why is that? Well, that that was the thing that, that started me off, yes. I mean, the fact that, that there could be um, two neighbouring vineyards producing things that different, um, and one much better than the other. Although, you know, here I've got an issue as well. It's a philosophical issue, really. Why is something always better than something else? Why, you know, take Lafitte and Latour. Lafitte can't make a better Latour and vice versa. You know, better is an is a ambiguous word, um, let alone one being worth 99 points and the other 99. Well, I am, I am going to stop you there, Hugh, because I do want to ask you about this, because you bring it up in your, in your um, preface to the book, and I think it's a good moment to... to, to to discuss it briefly, you know, your, uh, what you write is you, you flag up the notion of scoring wines, for example, out of 100, which is uh, quite commonplace these days, as dangerous. Why? Because it, it gives people the idea that there is something objective and absolute in quality, which I would challenge. I mean, taste comes into it right there in the foreground. <laughs> it's not in the background. It's what you like. You know, Robert Parker is the man who got it all going. In fact, I remember so clearly uh, my own New York publisher, Dan Green of Simon & Schuster, uh, asked me in 1978, he showed me a manuscript and he said, Hugh, what do you think of this? You know? And I, let, I read the notes and I said, wow, this chap really... You know, he's got a tremendous feeling for the subject. He uses marvellous um, metaphors and rich rich vocabulary altogether. 
Uh, I said, but there are numbers down the side. It says 1975, um, uh, 88 or something. And I said, well, what's that about? He said, that's a sc- score, I said. <laughs> so you know, this is where I met this thing. And I've never really understood it. I've never used it. I'm incapable of using it because I wouldn't know whether a wine was 98 or 97 or 95. But you, but to, to, uh, playing devil's advocate, um, you do assign a notion of quality to a wine. There is a, uh, an, in, even in, if it's Hugh Johnson's world, you, was, you, you could say, well, I'd rather drink that one than that one, or I would have five glasses of that one and I could only manage one. Uh-huh, of them. That's a very good point. How much do you want? Now, I, I do remember you, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, having, uh, there was an idea of, you'd say, you could rate it along the following lines. I'd have a glass or a bottle, or I'd buy the whole wine estate. I, I had, had, I put that in my pocket wine book years ago. I, that's right. The, the, the bottom score was one sniff. One sniff. Then <laughs> there was one sort of tentative sip. And if you could bring yourself to have a second sip, then it wasn't absolutely disgusting, um, and so on, up to the, the final thing. But you know, you. You bought twelve bottles, and finally you buy the you, you buy the chateau. You buy the whole chateau, <laughs> and and you have actually been true to your words, to say because you have been involved in the ownership of, of certain estates, haven't you? Well, I've been involved to a, to, yeah. to a, to an extent. Yes, I mean, sadly with Chateau Latour, I was not an owner, uh, but um, no, I've been involved with Peter Vinding Dears um, at uh, Landiras, his finally unsuccessful but really good chateau in the Grave. Uh, where he showed himself a complete master of white wine, I thought, and, and very good on red. And he did some fascinating things. We've, um, there's a book coming up, uh, coming out, which is his autobiography, which the Academy du Vin will publish next year, I hope, which is absolutely fascinating. He's an individual, he's Danish. Uh, he learnt winemaking in South Africa. He's totally individual, um, slightly sort of cussing character who follow his own course, whatever is happening. He was the person who involved me in the first place with, with Tokai. So when you got involved with Royal Tokai after the fall of communism? We'd been talking about it and tasting it and saying, if only, you know, this was the one, the one of the world's acknowledged great wines. Some said the greatest. Uh, which had got stuck behind the Iron Curtain and so screwed totally. Um, and we said, you know, communism is not going to last forever. And then it became obvious that it was really on the skids in, in, in 1998. 88, sorry. Yeah. Sorry, 80, 88, 88 and 89, really. 1989 was yeah. the, the great revolution. Yes. Um, and so... We went to Tokai, we went to the village of Mad, and you can imagine the jokes, um, and talked to the cooperatives there and said, you know, could we get grapes from good vineyards? And could we, look, if you bring us the grapes, we will supervise the rest and we'll make it famous. And so we took in a few people, one of whom, to our absolute delight, who uh, was um, Isvan Sepshi, who was managing the co-op uh, or the production side. Uh, and he came and he was our first manager. And of course, he was 
he was the secret of success. He very he didn't stay with us for long because he had his own fish to fry, wonderful winemaker, and an absolute fanatic on terroir. I mean, to to go round the vineyards with him while he talks about the soil and shows you the soil is a complete experience. And we've tasted the wines together recently, and it's 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 they've really evolved, haven't they? And wonderful to see that relationship. How do you feel about having been able to help with that? Well, that was Peter's idea, Peter Vinding's idea. You see, when we started, we had a sort of mental image of what we wanted Tokai to reintroduce Tokai. You know, this would be our model. And he blended this wine, which is now called Blue Label, Royal Tokai Blue Label. But Asu is important. This Tokai Asu is the sweet mm-hmm. stuff. And this worked quite well, very well, really, to start with. Um, but at that point, we be- we began to learn that it was that there were vineyard- better and worse vineyards, and that the best grapes were coming from vineyards which had been classified way back. And it was Peter who found the old classification in the book in Latin, date about seventeen hundred, and he said, "Wait a moment, you know this is this is a great grape. This is a second growth." In Tokai, the wines had never been sold the Burgundy way by the name of vineyards. They were always sold by the proprietor's name, which is much more Bordeaux. So he said, well, look, if we think that uh, Neolazo and St. Thomas have different characters the way that Jean-Bertin and Musigny have different characters, let's say so. And so we were the first ones to put the vineyard names on the labels. And... Sommeliers thought we were crazy. They couldn't uh, pronounce the names in the first place. Um, and it took it, it, it took a bit of bedding down. But now, I mean, far vintners are selling sets of these class growths. Uh, and it was, um, it was, became officially a classification in 1730 or so. So it was, it was classified before anything in France was. Uh, in, in the new edition, you write that wine is bottled history. Um, it expresses traditions, place and time as nothing else does, certainly nothing else we eat or drink. Now, taking you back a bit, in London in, in 1961, you drank a, a 1540 Stein wine from Würzburg on the River Mine in Germany. What was that experience like? Well, I didn't know how incredibly privileged I was. I must say, it was, it was a, a winemaker in... Um, it may fair called Ehrmann, I mean a wine, a wine merchant, not a winemaker, who had somehow procured this bottle from Würzburg, where there is still a bottle in the cellar, because I've seen it, of the famous 1540 vintage. And he had a wonderful story to tell about it, um, how it was the greatest vintage ever in Germany. It was the driest year ever. The Rhine dried up. Stonemasons were using wine instead because they didn't have any water for their mortar to build with. That's what they said. And when there were a great vintage in, in Germany, when when that happened, they used to make a, a great barrel specially for it. And that barrel is still there in the cellars uh, of, of the residence in Würzburg. It's not the biggest battle barrel you've ever seen. It's only about the size of this room. <laughs> but um, And then that was called on on great occasions, they had a drop of this famous wine. Uh, and no doubt they had to top it up too, because you can't keep a half a barrel, really. So 
one supposes that they either topped it up with the next really great vintage, or the other wheeze was to drop stones in it to keep the level up. But it got quite heavy with a big barrel. But what was the wine like, and, and how? what do you remember about the experience? There were about a dozen of us, so we had a tiny, tiny little glass each, uh, and it, it, it was brown. There was something about the nose that made me think Germany. If I hadn't known Germany, maybe not. But, but anyway, there was a little bit of sense of place, if you like. And then it was like very old Madeira, really. Utterly, utterly oxidised, you know, beyond oxidised, mm. but hanging on. And this was the extraordinary thing, hanging on. Uh, because, uh, I mean, we literally swallowed something that had been alive, alive since before Shakespeare was born. And how did that make you feel? Um, moved really, uh, you know, bottled history. Wow, it's quite humbling, isn't it? It's uh, and 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 you because I think you said in that tasting you tried some other wines, which were yes, we did some old Rheingau wines. Yeah. There was Johannesburger ninety, uh, sorry, um, eighteen thirty nine or something, and it was completely. It wasn't just past it. It was actually. It was like smelling an open grave, and I said, "But disgusting." <laughs> But this 1540 was, was very, very old, but it was still, still alive. Hanging in there. And I think one of your comments in the book is that life, vitality is something... Yeah. That it was the sunshine of an extraordinary year. Uh, on, a, on a slope in, in, in Germany before yeah. Shakespeare was born. There were very, very steep slopes. The, uh, the famous Stein uh, vineyard in, uh, above the t- town of Würzburg. Yeah. I mean, I've been there many times. And... Now, um, we, we've... Talked about 1540, this very warm vintage, the, the medieval warm period, of course, features in the book, which is very interesting. Um, but taking that on, climate change, obviously the biggest issue in, in, in wine right now, something you raise in your preface as well. You say, you know, in classical vineyards, everything is marginal. Everything is just so. The combination of delicate balance of climate, soil and location. Um, and, and you end by saying this, the situation is fluid. Um can you elaborate a bit more on that? I mean, how do you see the future of wine if the predictions for climate change are as they are? If global warming carries on at the present rate, which is extraordinary, um, then people have got to change rather smartly. Already vintage time has been advanced by weeks in many places. And they're starting the harvest in August, in, even in Champagne which is really northerly, uh, probably in England too. I mean, how can England suddenly make wine as good as champagne, which it's doing, uh, because the climate is warmer? Now, Bordeaux obviously recently introduced the trials of um, seven different grape varieties, including Tariga Nacional. Now, that was unthinkable 10, 20 years ago, but obviously they're being pushed to try new things that they, they're they facing the reality of climate change what, what do you think about this the sort of you know the fact that the, the the heretical notion that Pinot Noir and Chardonnay on the Cote d'Or actually might not be suitable in, in 50 or 100 years time well it seems heretical uh, but the test is the taste you know if it tastes like Bordeaux I'm not going to argue about what grapes went into it are you <laughs> so you think the just Wine people adapting is the way it should go. And, and well, as I mentioned, you know, Malbec was replaced by Cabernet. It didn't taste the same, but but still, the first growth remained the first growth. But part of, the, of that, of course, is the amount of investment in them. 
it's really fascinating why are the first growths where they are because the rich men grabbed the best land and how could they tell it was the best land it was the highest land in the Medoc it's very simple and then the second growth were as near as they could get to the top really the, the whole business of, of second-hand wine was quite a new invention, really. I mean, Christie's brought this on. So, yeah, to talk about that a little bit, because at one point you say also, it's to, to do with the, the, the notion of scores, you say that um, uh, wine has become, uh, te- you know, it's joined the tedious world of luxury goods. And part of that is because wine now has a secondary value, a value almost as a commodity. Well, what do you think of that trend? Well, you see, I don't think there's anything more tedious than that FT supplement called How to Spend It. I mean, it's so vulgar and so crass. Uh, I sort of understand it. Uh, it's all about showing off. But I, that's why I call the, the luxury world tedious, because you know perfectly well you're going to see these watchmakers and jewellers and scents and perfumes and so on in these supplements. And presumably people enjoy seeing these glossy pictures, otherwise why would they bother? Uh, but I, uh, to me that's utterly tedious. And if that started, it is has started to apply to wine, um, where it is sort of bigged up on its score, uh, on certain amount of hyperbole. You think it's a bit much? Because obviously, you know, you're, you're, you're a notable Claret fan, Bordeaux lover. You said that Proust had his Madeleines, I have my Claret. Um, it must pain you, therefore, to see the likes of Lafitte and Latour, which you've mentioned. Go out of sight? Oh, yes, it does. It reflects far, far more than the quality of the vineyard. Let's put it that way. Uh, and the things that it reflects are not very desirable things um, to me. Uh, and yet, I'm steeped in Latour. I, I love it, and I was lucky enough to actually work there for a bit. That flavour, the flavour of that vineyard, is the proof of that terroir really means something. I can't say that about all of Bordeaux or any other chateau, uh, but it is priceless and irreplaceable, although it's not priceless, because, you see, they've got the second wine, Le Four. And the third wine, Boyac, which still has that taste. An element of it. It's like it's like the Grand Vin water and up to a point. You know. But for the Grand Vin, most people, most wine lovers probably couldn't afford it. it. <laughs> we it's very difficult, especially now. Moving on to, to, to another sort of uh, recent modern thing. Uh, we had a good, well, there was a big Twitter conversation, which you very kindly joined in about no and low alcohol wine. Younger people these days seem to be drinking less and less. In this debate on Twitter, you, you masterfully... And very simply commented, you know, I have a spritzer and no one seems to mind, which I thought was a wonderful <laughs> intervention. One of my favourite quotes from you of all time is that sobriety is a relatively recent invention. Do you think, with young people just drinking less and less, that we're in danger of taking things a bit too seriously? Gosh, I don't know the answer. If you look at the evidence, this country in the 18th century was drunk all the time. I mean, schoolboys drank small beer, and it wasn't that small. A breakfast. Um, the Prime Minister uh, had a bottle of port beside him in the House of Commons. Uh, William Pitt is supposed to have drunk six bottles of port a day, and he was anemic as a, as a, as a little as a as fourteen, 
and the doctor recommended a pint of port a day. Uh, so they were drunk all the time. And when William Hague was writing his his biography of Pitt, um, he asked me what I how drunk I thought he was. <laughs> we had a lunch at Berry Brothers to, to discuss this. And what was your conclusion about how drunk? Well, we made allowances. We sort of said, right, well, pot, you know, it was only a pint bottle. It wasn't a whole bottle, uh, and it was not fortified quite as much as modern port. Maybe it was like drinking half a bottle of Chateauneuf du Pape. Well, that wouldn't exactly get you... It wouldn't get you paralytic, but you'd certainly be a bit merry. I mean, you'd be a bit merry. But you don't think this was a barrier to human progress and a terribly bad thing? It was a barrier, but they jumped it. They got round it. I don't know. Um, it, you, the evidence all is that people were sozzled most of the time. Um, talking about English wine, what, what's your, you mentioned it briefly in passing before as well. What's your take on English wine? I'm so excited by it. I mean, honestly, I'm drinking more English bubbles than French ones now, easily. I mean, I'm, I'm thrilled by it. We'll have a glass in a moment. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Exciting. <laughs> Better wrap this up quickly. <laughs> um, and what about the still wines as well? Yes, I mean, the, the, the briskness is a thing, and that's emphasised by the bubbles, and it just suits, so far it suits English wine brilliantly. We, I think there are one or two, I hope several, vineyards that are distinguishing themselves now. I mean, we've got a bit of a, what might eventually be a coat door in, in Kent, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, Kitscote is a vineyard near Maidstone. Uh, which can make really very considerable white wines, Chardonnay or Bacchus. Um, they've got all the dimensions of a, of a great wine to me. I mean, on the Downs, north and south, there will be places like that. And the Thames Valley, I mean, there's lots of those escarpments where, where it could happen. It is wonderful. And it's great to see, it's rare in wine that things happen fast, isn't it? But it seems to be that England and Wales have really come on so fast in the last... Oh, yes. Years. Yeah. I mean, Wales always gets always gets included out of courtesy, I think. I mean, I'm very fond of Wales. Um, we go to Wales four times a year. But let's, just, let's talk about English wine. <laughs> um, a couple of last questions. Um, in, we're now in a world beset by COVID, COVID, whatever you want to call it, coronavirus. Difficult question, but how how do you think this will change wine? You've written about wine fundamentally being a social game. We're obviously seeing a sort of easing of lockdown, but do you think how do you think this will change wine? In the longer term, this horrible disease will disappear and it won't be a problem. Uh, how long? <laughs> uh, no, we'll get over it. We'll get over it, and I don't think it will leave a mark on wine except as a blip. So, last question: what's what's next for Hugh Johnson? What's the, what are the next projects coming up? Your project. I mean, I'm thrilled that my story of wine is coming out again because 30 years later, I had to think very hard, you know, is this still a valid book? And then I, yeah, it's more valid than ever, actually, because the, not because of its conclusions, but because of its, its, its evidence of how we are where we are. And it's fun besides. It's a great story. Uh, at the same time, I continually write about gardening, plants and trees. I've, I'm a forester. I've got some woodland in Wales, which I love. Um, and I'm just as fascinated by that aspect of, of 
plant life and the beauty of plant life, if you like. I mean, wine is an expression of, of, a, of an aspect of the beauty of nature. And so are the flowers we grow. And so are the trees we grow. And, 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 and um, forestry has something in common with, with wine. You, know, take, you, you take a very long-term decision when you decide what to plant in a wood. Um, if, you, if you plant conifers, uh, softwood, you're looking at 40 or 50 years, like laying down a great wine. If you plant oak, you're, going to, you're talking about 150 years, slightly different. But you could, if you can convince yourself that that is the right thing in the terroir that you have and that uh, it will make a fine product long after you're dead, well, there's a great deal of satisfaction in that too. So I, I did ask um, the Twitter sphere. For, for their questions to put to you. One person came back with quite a difficult question, which was, very simply, trees or vines? Both. <laughs> That's sort of getting round, round the issue, but I, 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 I'll let you get away with that one. Um, Hugh Johnson, thank you very much indeed. Well, thank you, Peter. It's been great fun talking to you. There are so many things I'd love to follow up on or discuss after listening to that. I mean, Hugh making stuff up for the first World Atlas of Wine, it's just brilliant. It's genius, isn't it? I mean, so funny. I'm sure it wasn't very much, but it is quite funny. I mean, Elizabeth David, I, I mean, imagine I being friends with Elizabeth David. You know, I mean, probably quite scary, but, you know, interesting. Um, scoring wine, his opinion mm-hmm. on that, really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then wine is a tedious luxury goods. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, yeah, interesting. There are so many things. But, but I mean, but let's face it, this is already a long podcast and I think we could just leave it there for now and we can carry on the discussion elsewhere, either in subsequent podcasts or or all of us on social media, yeah, whatever. Yeah, let's have a big debate. Um, but, yeah. but one thing I am dying to know, which okay, cool. is important to me, yeah, and you yeah. haven't told me, you didn't mm-hmm. mention this, mm-hmm. which English wine did Hugh serve you after the interview ended? Yeah, I know. Well, can I just say before I say, you know, what a, what a brilliant, what an artful what, what an elegant way of bringing an interview to a close. <laughs> Telling you it's time to end. I need you a know, drink. Offering the prospect of a delicious, <laughs> you know, English fizz. It's fantastic. I was powerless to resist. Of you I were. had to end it. You know, I had to wrap it up. You know, even though I still wanted to ask him hundreds of questions, you know, and, and follow up on all the points I think you're referring to. Uh, you know, it, it, that was just it, you know. I, anyway, answering your question, uh, it was Dermot Sugru's Zodo, his oh. his his um, zero dosage Sussex fizz, which mm. was which was amazing, fantastic, yeah, yeah. yeah we're yeah. big fans of Dermot. Uh, yeah. He makes the wine at Whiston, and mm. also for for quite a few other people, including his own project actually, which is great, Sugru mm. South Downs. So, how was Zodo tasting? Well, it was it was yeah, it it was beautiful. I mean, it might have been the the, the mood, the atmosphere, the place. It um, certainly might but, have been. You know, it could have been, and I think it's fair to say, and as we've discussed before, we remain entirely unconvinced about uh, low dosage for. English fizz, because, yeah, which is why I'm interested in. Yeah, you know, you know because I think we we think it's that some of it is quite marketing led, and and it can actually fundamentally affect the balance and, and the age worthiness of, of the wine in in ways that aren't good. But this one, yeah, it was it was delicious. So you know, hats off to Dermot, well done. Um, thanks again to Hugh as well. Uh, we also had found time for a cheeky syrup from Sicily made by Peter Vinding Deers. You know, Hugh's great friend who he refers to in the podcast. You know, so all round it was a fascinating and actually happy a pretty, Mon- pretty happy Monday. <laughs> pretty delicious visit. Yeah, so it seems. <laughs> uh, I think I'll be doing the next interview. Anyway, that's uh, time to wrap up. Thanks to Hugh Johnson and to you for listening. If you like what you've heard, then please do leave a rating and review on your platform of choice. Uh, 
as you know, it really helps and we massively appreciate it. Uh, the Story of Wine costs £30 and is published on the 9th of September, as we said, by Academy du Vin. So that's www.academyduvinlibrary.com and you'll also find it on Amazon. Uh, you can pre-order now and there will also be an e-book available at 9 in due course. So until next time, cheers. <laughs>